Thank you so much for joining us for the Summit Podcast. This message was produced with you in mind, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has shown himself faithful in your life. Email us at mystory@summittogether.com. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared chariot and horses appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha saw this and cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took the cloak that had fallen from him and he struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord? Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked, and when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left. And uh, he, he crossed over the divided water. So there, there have been a number of defining moments in my life. One was uh, as I was a senior in high school and and I had this values conflict. We're going to talk about values tonight. I had this values conflict between whether I was to go play baseball. I had a couple of opportunities, scholarship opportunities to go to college. Um, and I said I wasn't going to talk about baseball anymore. But look at me. I'm starting out that way. Huh? So I had this values conflict between playing baseball or being a pastor. My dad was a pastor. And and I, I really wanted, I was one of those guys that wanted God's will, you know, in my life. I really did want God's will in my life, but I had a lot of passion for baseball, and I'd found a lot of worth, uh, a, a lot of affirmation from, from baseball, and so it made it hard for my heart to, to go to, you know, a Bible college to prepare for the, the call of ministry on, on my life. And uh, just before... I'd actually, I'd actually decided to go to a school to play baseball, and, and um, that, was, that was my decision. But I was at a youth retreat right before college began, and uh, I began to, the presence of the Lord came, and I began to weep. Uh, it was very unusual for me. I'm not demonstrative normally, and um, being in Texas, I've learned to grow demonstrative, but at that time, I really wasn't. And so I uh, just started weeping, and I wept, and I wept, and I wept, and um, I realized that the, God was doing something in my heart. And after 24 hours of weeping, 24 hours of crying, finally I said, God, that's enough. That's enough. If you'll help me stop crying, I'll go to Bible college and prepare for the ministry. Okay. And immediately I, I stopped crying. And I knew after that, that episode that um, God had made his calling on my life clear. If people ask me, they say, they say Pastor, have you been called to pastor Trinity Church, I say, yes, and then I, I tell them that story, um, because that, that was a persuasive engagement, an encounter, we've already prayed for encounters tonight for you, so that was an encounter with God that left me, um, it left me secure in the future that God, that God had, you know, for me. Are, are you comprehending the story? Okay. All right, so then, um, 
you're, you're sitting there and you're going, well, that's good for you, Jim. I have no possible idea how that's relevant to my life. So I'll, I'll try to tell you. You know this, right? Every Christian is called. Every Christian is called. In your experience, I hope your experience wasn't nearly as dramatic as mine because my heart was just so stubborn. That's why it had to be a dramatic experience. But the reality is um, Ephesians 4, 3 makes it so clear. It, it says, walk worthy, and that's the values. That, and we're going to talk about values tonight. That's, that's the value judgment, the worth of the call, the worth of God, which allows you to walk in your call. Walk with high assessment. Walk with high assessment of the calling of God that, is, that, that you have received. And there's lots and lots of verses I could read. I'm not going to. Romans 8:28 is one that I will read, though. It says, we know that all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called. And you said they don't talk back to you. Look at them talking back to me. <clears throat> They've been called according to his purpose. There you go. Now, I'll just be direct. Without a call, without a call, you're just here. Um, you are either um, thrown into this world or you're called into this world. And there's a huge difference. I, I love uh, uh, Le Mis. It's like my favorite. I watched the movie and the Broadway, and I just love it. And there's a scene in Le Mis where all the young men are barricaded on the wall and they know that they're about to die for their cause. They're going to die for their cause. And they start singing this song to each other and, and hear the words of the song. It says, will the world remember you when you fall? Could it be your death means nothing at all? And it's a very poignant question. Um, I'll ask it like this. Are you just a social security number? You know, Are, are you just... Are you just a student at the college? Um, are you just a voter? Are you just a consumer? You, you know, it, are you just a church attender? Is that what you are? Is that all that you are? Does your life really matter? Does your life make a difference at, at all? Because, I mean, that's the question. Does your life matter? And the answer is, if there is no creator, and it's pretty easy. I could really go off on this, this whole deal about, you know, evolutionary theologies and all kinds of things. I'm going to stay on task tonight. If there is no creator, you're just an accident. If there's no creator, then you're just a conglomeration of gases and your life cannot possibly have real purpose. Not real, not real meaning. You're living, you're dying, doesn't matter that much if you're just an accident. But if you've been called, oh my goodness, if you... <laughs> If, if there's a divine sovereign orchestration over your life, then that's going to give you a perspective for how you should live that is going to be a life of adventure, I'll just tell you. It's going to be a life of conquest. It's going to be, it's going to be an amazing kind of life. And so the goal of this message, I'll just tell you up front, the goal of my being here tonight is to, is to get you to really believe, not just in your head but deep in your heart, that your life is incredibly purposeful to the cause of God and the, and the purpose of God and the will of God. You matter to God. You matter to God. Your being here matters to God. Um, and, and I'll just put a little thesis on that. Um, 
the real purpose of my life, the purpose of my life rests on how well I understand my calling. The purpose of my life rests on how well I understand my, uh, my, my calling. So I think every, all of us, if you're here tonight, God bless you for being here tonight. Look at you. Look at you coming out on a Sunday night. Aren't you amazing? You, you're the group I really want to talk to. Every believer who's really serious about their faith, they're the ones who come out on Sunday night, every believer who's serious about their faith has a great responsibility to find your calling and to live in, a, in an awareness of your calling, you see. To live knowing that you've been called. So all that to say, look at Elisha. <laughs> look at Elisha. He's, uh, here's a couple of things we know about him. Number one, he's rich. He's rich. He, he's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And he's, he's, he's taking care of the 12th pair, which means all the others are in front of him, which means he owns all these oxen. He's making sure that all these employees are staying in their, in their furrow. I don't know much about, about agriculture, so I'm not going to pretend like I do. You, you, you would know better than I do, but I read that in a commentary, so there you go. Uh, all these oxen belong to him. He's, he's pretty rich, and not only is he rich, here's the second thing we know about him. He's called, and, and here's the story. Elijah comes to him. There's some drama here. He throws the prophet's clothes. He's walking by. I got this in my mind. He's walking by. He throws his prophet's cloak on Elisha. Now think about that cloak for just a minute, okay? That cloak, um, what we know when we read the history of Elijah that precedes that, he's been running for his life now for qu quite some time, three years during the drought. Elijah's been trying to survive. And there's not one record of him taking a shower during the whole thir 36 months. And we know for sure he's been in a cave recently, um, hiding, surviving caves. I don't know, do you do caves? They're not really the most sanitary places. And watch this. He's been getting his food from buzzards. Just think about that for a minute. I mean, you know how buzzards behave. And that's what he's been eating. And not only that, there's a price on Elijah's head. There's a bounty out, out there. Jezebel has sworn to kill Elijah. And, and so this cloak, whatever you know about this cloak, it's not like a papal robe, okay? This is a dirty, smelly, I mean, this is a challenging thing. And if Elisha takes the cloak, you see, um, he, he's going to expect radical life transition. Radical life transition. I mean, at the very least, Elisha is being called from a, a, a life of comfort and status to a life of poverty and danger and, and fear. And, and Elisha says, okay, I'll take the cloak. And he runs after Elijah. He runs after Elijah. He asks, can I kiss my family goodbye? And then I'm gonna, I'm gonna become your attendant. And he becomes Elijah's, Elisha becomes Elijah's attendant. That's like a butler, I guess, or, or something for 18 years. 18 years, he's taking care of the man of God. And, and then the next scene, the second one that I read to you, is 18 years later, Elijah and Elisha, they're walking along together, and, and Elisha says, Elijah, I want a double portion of your spirit. 
I want a double portion of the anointing that's on you. And it sounds a little bit funny. Theologians suggest, that, I mean, I guess they counted the miracles and there's about twice as many miracles that Elisha did as Elijah. But Elisha's not asking to be twice as good as Elijah. That's not what he's asking at all. He's asking to take Elijah's inheritance, to take the part of the inheritance that always went to the oldest son. And so what he's saying to Elijah, Elisha is saying to Elijah, and if I get those mixed up, you'll know which one I'm talking about anyway, right? Because it's hard to keep them straight. But Elisha is saying to Elijah, I want to be your firstborn son. I, I want to be, be equal to you. I want to be effective like you have been effective. And here's what Elijah says. Okay, if you see me go, if you see me go, you'll get the double portion. Well, down comes the chariot. Up goes Elijah. Down drifts the cloak, the mantle, right down out of heaven. And Elisha goes over to the Jordan River, and he, and, he, and he had just watched Elijah smite the river with the cloak, and it, and it rolled back, and so Elisha did the same thing. He took that cloak, and he rolled it up, and he, and he hit the river, and, and it did what it had done under Elijah, and that was God's way of saying to Elisha, the, you're going to impact the world as effectively as Elijah impacted the world. Now, that's, that's the story. So here are the lessons of the story. Number one, we need to know how a mantle will reorder your life. How a mantle will reorder your life. Then secondly, I just want to spend a minute with the analysis of a calling. How do you know if you've been called? And then thirdly, what's it like if you decide to live out your purpose? What's it like if you decide to live out your purpose? So let's do this quickly. How does a mantle reorder your life? Um, Elijah and Elisha show us the kind of life that God is, is going to use. So here's Elisha. He's plowing 12 oxen. He's in charge. He's an achiever. He's got a comfy life. He's living in a big house up on the hill. You understand? If he wants to sleep in in the mornings, no problem because he's the boss. You know, he's the owner. If he wants to vacation in Cancun, he's got the resources to do it. He can catch a flight and go to Cancun. Everything that the world has been offering... <laughs> Elisha has taken it. It's available to, to, to him. And, 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 you know, we know that he's the owner because he kills the oxen. He would only be able to kill the oxen if, if he were the owner of the oxen. So here's Elisha. Power, wealth, status. And yet this mantle revolutionizes his life. Um, why does he burn the plow and slaughter the oxen? Well, he's liquidating. <laughs> he, he's making it impossible to ever come back to his house on the hill. He's, he's, he's crossing a line. And you know what? He didn't pocket the money. He didn't put it in a retirement account. He, he throws a party for all the people that know him. And the commentators make a really big deal out of this party because they say that nobody in that era would have ever experienced such a lavish party as the party that Elisha is throwing. And he's throwing a party because he's leaving all that. So what's going on here? What, what is this really about? And you know the answer, don't you? Something really radical is happening in the heart of Elisha that has never happened before. But Elijah, you know, is like Look, take my cloak, and you'll leave your comfort, you'll leave your power, you'll go into a life of hiding. You might not be liked by people because I'm not liked. You might be killed because they're trying to kill me. You're going to have to become vulnerable. You might become poor. And does Elisha go, oh, my, 
that's not fair. Oh my, this isn't right that I would follow after God and, and it would cost me all this. He doesn't say, oh, please, friends and neighbors at the party, please pray for me that I can survive this kind of calling on my life. He doesn't do that. He celebrates. He says, um, let's, just, let's just have a party because what's about to happen to me is a great, great privilege. I'm going to pursue something that the plows and the farm and the oxen and the servants could never bring to my heart. And now that I've found it, I don't ever want to go back. I don't ever want to go back. So he asks, um, he asks to kiss his family and he throws a party because he knows that a revolution of values is underway in his own heart. The things that he thought had great worth in his life have less worth now. And the things that had less worth in his life have great worth now. Is this making sense to you? And, and this, this great revolution is underway. I like to contrast this part of the story with another story in the Bible, um, the story about the rich young ruler. I don't know, I'm sure you guys might have known, heard that story as well. One day this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Jesus, what must I do to live an extraordinary life? What must I do to find the kind of life that we're all hungry for? And Jesus said, well, you need to keep the law. And uh, again, I'll ask, do you need this? Do you know this story? Do I need to give all the details? Do you know it? Kind of wave at me. Yeah, you know this story. Okay. And, and so keep the law. He says, well, I've done that. I've kept the law. And then Jesus says, okay, then let's, let's reorder the values of your life a little bit. Let's find out what has great worth to you. How about this? How about you sell everything you have and give it to the poor? And, and when I preach that, sometimes believers, Christians will push back and they'll say, wow, what a demand Jesus made on that guy to give up everything to sell to the, to the poor. But I like to respond and say, yeah, what a missed opportunity by the rich young ruler who didn't sell everything and give it to the poor. I mean, this man could have walked on water with Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Here's, here's a man who could have seen dead people come up out of the grave. Here's a man who could have been with Jesus when he calmed the storms and multiplied the fish and opened blind eyes. And I'm pretty sure, I don't know this because the Bible doesn't say it, but I'm pretty sure that on his deathbed, the rich young ruler was not going, wow, I'm so glad I held on to my money that day. I'm pretty sure his regrets were something like, I wonder what my life would have been if I had accepted the call of God. I wonder, what, I wonder what I gave up by not taking the adventure with Jesus. So, so you, you all agreed, I watched every one of you, over here, over here, over here, and even up there, every one of you recognized, yep, there's a call of God on my life, but how does your heart react to the call? How are you doing with this revolution of values that's underway? Are you like Elisha or are you like the rich young ruler? I mean, what really has worth to you today as you're living out your life for the next, you know, 40, 50, 80 years? What really has value to you? Because here's a principle. If you have everything the world can offer, but you're not living in the call of God, then there, need, there is a revolution of values available to you as well. See? I don't know, this is like, I'm sounding like a Southern preacher here when I tell you this, but come on, guys. Our culture 
has reached a point. Don't you think our culture has reached a point? You know, I like to call it the me millennials. You know, it's just like there's this insistence in our culture that you know, God is not the center of the universe. I'm the center of the universe. What matters, what has the most worth is me. You know, my personal needs are my highest value. My dreams are the things that, that matter the most. My freedom is, is the great pursuit of my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I don't want any restraints from tradition. I don't want any restraints from historical perspectives. I don't want any religious talk that makes me feel guilty about living the way that I want to live. I don't, you know, I don't want to participate in any disciplines that require me to live in certain ways. I want my future to be in my hands and it connects my, I want to connect my personal rights and my personal advancement. That's the, that's the thing that has value to me. And what happens of course, is you end up, the society I think ends up with this, this weightlessness, this, this lost significance, this, this lost value around the most fundamental decisions of of life. I mean, relationships all of a sudden seem really flimsy because all of us are going into our, not all of us, but me, you know, people are going into our relationships going, well, I'm going to love you, but I really, it's about me. It's about what am I going to get out of this relationship? And, and marriages are failing because, well, it's just not really working out for me. And parents aren't really doing that great of a job with their children because the reason they had children in the first place was I need some fulfillment. I got some empty places in my heart. So I think I'll have babies and you know, the career's not really working out because they want me to do things that I don't want to do, and I'm not going to do anything I don't want to do. And, and again, I'll just be as direct as I can. Selfish living makes you an unhappy person. It, it just does. And the empty places that are in your heart will never be filled up if you are the purpose of your life. On the other hand, if there is a God... And there is, if there is a God, he created you with divine purpose. He redeemed you because he has a strategy through your life and for your life and your life fits into this unbelievable plan that God has to return all things under the feet of Jesus, to bring all things under, under his dominion. You're part of that and God wants to extend himself through you. And, and, and that's really the good news that God does love us and he does have power and, you know, he, he does redeem deem the world, but um, you're going to, we're going to, we, you don't have to sound like a you, but we, we're going to have to do what he built us to do if we're ever going to feel the true significance of our life. We're going to ever feel that we're purposeful here. I mean, maybe you're rich tonight. I don't know. I don't know what the median income of Indiana, Pennsylvania is. I don't know much about you, but I did. I knew no Jimmy Stewart was from here, so one of you got rich. But maybe, maybe you're rich. Maybe you got twelve oxen. Maybe you got a house on a hill. Maybe you got cars and land and friends, and you're at the top of your career. But the question is, what's it for? What's it for? Elisha got in touch with the idea that there was something available to him which would take his life so far beyond the, the farm. So it reordered his life. And I guess that's why I'm here tonight. I've come to ask you to get in touch with the idea that your life has purpose that is so far beyond your plan. It's God's redemptive plan working through you. It's the call of God. So number two, let's just take a minute to analyze our calling Chapter 19, verse 20, 
It says, he left the oxen and he ran after Elijah and he said, please let me kiss my father and my mother and then I'll follow you. And he said to him, go back. What have I done to you? Sounds kind of abrupt, right? But again, get it in your mind. Elijah throws the cloak and he walks away. He's just walking by, you know, and he just throws it. He throws that cloak on Elisha. Elisha has to run to, to catch up to him. And as soon as he catches up to him, he says, what I need to know, Elijah, is, is there time for me to go kiss my parents goodbye? And Elijah, the father, says, what have I done? You know, in other words, he says, you're asking me a question as though I did something to you. I'm not in charge of your calling. I, I didn't call you to be the next prophet to Israel. You're not my choice. I have no idea why God thinks you're going to make a good prophet. You know, I got nothing to do with this. I don't care if you go kiss your parents. I don't care what you do. You know, this is between you and God. <laughs> Elisha then demonstrates two parts to the call. And this is, this is important. He, Elisha shows us that God calls us, first of all, to be something. And then secondly, he calls us to do something. He calls us to be something and he calls us to do something. The call to be something is kind of general. Um, you know, it's, it's the apprenticeship and it's kind of the same for all of us. But the call to do something is, is very specific. Remember, Elisha is an apprentice for 18 years to Elijah. And, and this is the part where he is actually becoming something. And then he prophesies for 30 years over Israel. That's when he actually does something. I don't know. I like to have played this little imagination game. I'm trying to imagine Elisha's parents at the at the Jerusalem Country Club, okay? They're there at the Country Club because they're wealthy and they belong to it. And, and uh, the parents, like they do, they're talking about their kids and they're like, so tell me, you, you know, what, what's going on with your kids? And, and, you know, the one family's like, yeah, my son, he's on track to be the next, you know, the next chief priest. He's got so much favor. He's doing so well. And then the other family that's, you know, at dinner that evening, they're like, yeah, yeah, my, my son just got promoted to be the captain of the guard. And then they turn to, you know, Elisha's parents have been real quiet during the conversation. Now they turn to Elisha. Elisha's parents, well, what about Elisha? Tell us about him. Isn't he about 40 years old now? And uh, yeah, he, uh, he makes breakfast for Elijah and then he does his laundry and then he pours water on his hands. You know, he's been doing that for 18 years now. 18 years. Why? You know, and the answer, of course, is because he was called to be something. He was called. He was called to become something, not just do something. I wish the church would know that before we do stuff, we have to be stuff. Um, I mean, the point is, again, we're all called, and here's the general, here's what we're called to be, like Jesus. That's the call. We're called to be like Jesus. We're, we're called to, you know, participate in the hope that he gives to the world. We're called to distribute justice like Jesus. We're called to love like Jesus and, and heal like Jesus. And that's the point. Thank God for the Holy Spirit because he works with us to help us to become like Jesus so that we're all in a sense missionaries and we're all, you know, carriers of the, that's what the tests are about that are in your life. That's, that's why you have to forgive that guy that hurt you so much because you're supposed to become something, you see. That's why being a Christian sometimes isn't just like dancing around all the time. Sometimes you, you got to pour some water on somebody's hand. Sometimes you got to do some stuff that nobody else is willing to do because you're supposed to become something. The, the symbol of becoming something was the burning of the plow because 
Again, this is Sunday night church. This is, not different. this is not what I would preach on Sunday morning, but this is the reality. Nobody gets to just like try Christianity out and see how it goes. You have to burn the plow. You, you know, when you burn the plow, you make a pledge, just like a marriage covenant. You make a pledge and you say, okay, God, no matter how this turns out, no matter how this looks, no matter what others say about me, no matter how it feels from time to time, following you is the new value of my life. It's worth it. Again, I, I, I don't know what illustrations to tell you, but let me just go back to the marriage. Like when Beck and I first got married, we were so young. We were so young and so selfish. And so it didn't take long for our marriage to really digress. And it was bad. I won't give you all the dirty details, but we just really didn't like one another. And here we were in the ministry. Here we were in front of everybody. And our marriage was so unstable. And we just, we didn't, yeah, it was such a, it was such a mess. And we both were like, is there any way we can get out of this marriage? Is there any way we could, you know, and we both couldn't. And the reason we couldn't is because there was a call of God on our life. I'm not trying to preach any kind of condemnation to anybody else, but we just knew, like, we are stuck in this. And so we made this agreement. Okay, I'll tell you what. We'll be faithful to God, and we'll be faithful to one another. We're not going to love one another. We're gonna, we'll just try to like one another. We'll just try to get along with this, you see. And the most amazing thing happened. I mean, she received a prayer, and it was like this powerful thing broke off of her and she entered into a new freedom and, 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 you know, I got to a little bit nicer and a little bit, I care. I don't know what happened. Something happened, but we were in this crucible and the more we stayed in this crucible, things were happening where we were becoming what we were supposed to become so that we could do what we were supposed to do. And I'm just so thankful for that bad time in my life because that's where the foundation was laid for the wonderful intimacy that we have now. Does this make any sense to you? There's a lot of people, you know, it's just like, well, I don't want to become the husband. I don't want to become the wife. I don't want to become. It's like, if you don't become, you'll never do. See? I just have to note that Elisha was specifically engineered. You know, he had a specific call as well. And the specific call was to be a prophet to Israel. But, but watch, in 1 Kings 19, 15 and 16, Elijah also was instructed to give a mantle to Hazael to be the king of Syria and to Jehu to be the king of Israel. And so I, you know this because you're very wise, I can tell, but I just have to tell you, look, there is a mantle that's not just for preachers, <laughs> right? Or prophets. There's a mantle that's for engineers and coaches, and there's a mantle for your marriage, and there's a mantle for everything. Every one of us, there's, there's a mantle for us. And God calls us and he structures our life in such a way that he can release the grace that is necessary so that we can become what we're supposed to come so that we can do what we're supposed to do. Oh, that's such good preaching, Jim. I tell you, that's just <laughs> blessing me so much. There, there are certain people in this world that only you can reach. Uh, there, there are certain ways of testifying about the grace of Jesus that only you can testify to. There are certain miracles that only your faith can activate. And, and I'll just try to be a little practical with you. If you decide to answer the call to be what God has asked you to be, the doing part will eventually come. It took 18 years 
for Elijah to figure out he was supposed to be a prophet. And maybe, I mean, I still don't know for sure what I'm supposed to be when I grow up. You know what I'm saying? The specific becomes, becomes a whole lot less important than the general. Once you become something, then the doing will, will come later on. So don't worry so much about that. All right, number three, I'm almost done. So what's it like if you decide that you're going to live in God's purpose? You're going to, you're going to embrace this call of God. You're going to be what you're supposed to be. You're going to do what you're supposed to do. What, what's that really like? Because truthfully, it sounds like a lot of pressure. I've tried to make, it, I've tried to make you, your shoulders slump down a little bit. It looks like I've succeeded in doing that. Um, I'm talking about a missional life. I mean, some of you are sitting there like, are you kidding? You know, I've got to give up all of my oxen and I've got to burn my plows. And, you know... I, 18 years of pouring water on somebody's hand, I don't think I'm cut out for that. I don't even know if I want this kind of a Christian life, you see. Okay. 2 Kings 2, Elijah is taking, he's, he's, he's taken up on a chariot. <laughs> this is pretty dramatic stuff. Um, his mantle falls down out of the sky on Elisha. And suddenly, unleashed in Israel is unprecedented power. I mean, the revelation of God through Elisha has never happened like this before. Lepers get healed. Axe heads float up out of the water. I don't think that's happened before our sense. You know what I'm saying? Uh, poverty is broken in the drought. Dead people rise up. Water that is, you know, polluted gets purified. <laughs> These unseen armies defeat, defeat the seen armies. I mean, there's a lot of cool stories uh, about Elisha. And it all happened because Elijah goes up and the mantle falls down. And I don't know if you... This is kind of, again, this might be a South thing. I'm a little, I'm a little nervous about my Southernness tonight talking to you, but did you ever sing that, that song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Coming For To Take Me Home? That is a really stupid song. <laughs> Please don't ever sing that again. I mean, you can sing it again, but it is not theologically, it's not theologically accurate at all. There is nothing sweet about a chariot, Okay. You can sing about chariots, but if you're singing about chariots, you're not singing about sweet. This is not like, you know, in downtown Dallas, they have these little horse and buggies that you can rent for romantic, and people just ride in the back. This is nothing like that at all. Anytime there's a chariot in the Bible, somebody is about to die. Uh, chariots are nothing but, but war. You know, it's armament. That, that's all it is. And so, and so, What's happening for Elijah is he's about to enter this conflict. And Elisha knows that when he gets in that chariot, something, something is about to happen. And not just the military component of the, of the chariot, but there's these clouds and this fire and this whirlwind. And so Elisha knows that the prognosis for Elijah is not sweet. It's not sweet. Because... What they're both experiencing, what they're both seeing is um, raw, unfiltered presence of God. 
And, and the main thing that the Old Testament people knew about the raw, unfiltered presence of God is that if you got too close to it, it'd kill you. So, um, I mean, you know, right? You could do this, bur- the burning bush. Moses is like, whoa. And God says, take off your shoes. Be, be careful here and don't get too close. And when God was, when the whirlwind and the fire was on the top of Mount Sinai, God, God said, don't let the people get close to this. Keep them away. Keep the animals away. Don't, don't let them touch the mountain or the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember that story when the two guys were just trying to be helpful and they reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant and zap. It's like one of those bugs. Never mind. It's, uh, anytime you carried the presence of God, you better carry it with poles and you better carry it carefully because wherever you found what Elijah was going into, the funnel cloud, the wind, the, the, the fire, wherever you found that, people, people just died. But for the first time in history, Elijah didn't die. He went into the whirlwind and he didn't die. In fact, the fire and the wind united Elijah with God. Now, everybody knows the glory of God kills people, but here's Elijah coming into the glory of God, coming into the fire, coming into the wind, and he doesn't die. And not only does he, does he not die, he comes into intimacy with God. And out of that union came this remarkable mantle to support the, the testimony of God through Elisha in Israel. Again, I'm just looking for a little affirmation. Does this make sense to you? I'm teaching you something here. And, and here's the point. Elijah experienced for the very first time in history what all of us take for granted on a regular basis. It's called the presence. The presence of God. The raw, unfiltered, Shekinah glory of God is available. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. It's available to us. It's the reason Jesus died on the cross so that so that the holiness of God could be satisfied by the perfect sacrificial lamb. Thank you for singing the song tonight about the lamb of God. That's why Jesus died on the cross because now our sins don't disqualify us from the presence of God. In fact, we are able to come into the unifying place with God just like Elijah did for the very first time. I'll just keep saying it until I believe you're getting it in your heart. As the bride of Christ, we have access to the fire and to the wind. And that's what explains the story of the early church. That's the only explanation for those guys. Jesus told the follow, his followers, like, okay, I'm going to go back to heaven. What I need you to do is wait in the upper room until you receive the fire and the wind and the funnel cloud, and then you can be what you're supposed to be, and then you can do what I've called you to do. And when the wind and the fire began to fill the room, out marched the mobilization of the missionaries, and the world has never been the same. What do you think? What do you, what do you, 
What do you imagine the church to be? Listen, we're not here to be idealist. We're not here to be moralist. We're not here to be politically whatever we're supposed to be. We're not here just to be teachers and instructors. We are here because Jesus Christ enabled us to unite with God, we, to come into his presence, to move with his love. To, this is, listen, this is, this is not something that we just study about. It, it literally, the presence of God comes into the people of God. And, and, and you know, the, the power, Jesus said that that's the power that you actually need to give the testimony of Jesus that's never been given before. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can change the world. What I love about the upper room is it wasn't just for the clergy. The fire fell on all of them. It wasn't just for the ordained. Every one of those guys got a tongue on their head, you know. Um, let me think, how am I going to close this? How am I going to wind this down? So I mentioned this morning in the service, like, okay, guys, this is, when I come down here, you know, it's like, it's almost over with, okay. <laughs> so I mentioned to you this morning that, that there was a time in my life when I, I knew I had the call of God, but I didn't feel adequate to the call of God. And I had this spiritual experience, and, and the Lord sort of reprimanded me, and he said, I've made you to do something in Cedar Hill, Texas, and and I'm, again, it's way too much to try to explain it to you, but I'll just tell you what happened that night. I, I began to write down things that the Holy Spirit was communicating to me about the way my church should look. And these are terms that you've probably heard before, but at the time they were so fresh and they were so alive to me, I'd never heard terms like this before. Am I too close to you? Am I getting in your space? You're right. Because I might like just come right on down here. I don't know. But anyway, I'm like, so I'm, it's like, God, I don't know. I don't know how to lead this church. And he says, well, I've made you, all the episodes of your life, I've made you to be like this. And, and he gave me four terms. He says, I've made you to be a person who hungers after the substance. The sub substance. I never heard that as a religious term at all. I didn't even know what it, what it meant. But I, that, I'm writing this down. I wrote down notes that night, like pages and pages of notes. And what God said is, I want you to build a church that's built around the substance of God. And, and, and I said, I don't even know what that means. And he says, well, it's kind of like my glory, but here's, here's the way you need to understand. I want you to, make a, I want you to make a promise to the community around you that anytime they come to visit your church, they can have a reliable expectation to meet the living God, to have an encounter with a living God. So while it's important that you study about God, and while it's important that you rehearse what God has done throughout the ages, what I want you to promise your community is that if they come into your house, they will meet God. They will meet the living God. And the second core value, these are values, the second core value that came. I didn't, I never heard this before. I've heard it now, but, but I never heard it before. He says, and Jim, I really need you. I'm making you to be a person of covenant. I want you to operate in covenant relationships and I said, Lord, I don't even know what that means. He says, well, let me explain it like this. I mean, this is the way we're talking to one another. And he says, I need you, I want you to understand like this. All of your relationships have been contractual. He said, even, even back in the marriage, you know, you were contractual. It's like you were going to be in a relationship with somebody as long as it was clearly understood what they were going to put on the table. And then you would, in response, put on the table what they expected you to put on the table. He says, but don't you understand that as long as your relationships are contractual, he says, don't you understand that they're, 
there is an intuitive resistance to those relationships. He says, because sooner or later they know and you know that you're going to disappoint one another and the relationship is going to dissolve. He says, stop being contractual in your relationships and start being, start relating to people the way I relate to people in covenant. And, and uh, he reminded me that he was going to be faithful to me even when I was unfaithful to him. And that one really, I'll just be honest, that's the hardest one ever. That's the hardest one ever. But here's what, what unfolded that night as I was having this experience with God. God said, okay, so what I really need, just start with this. Start wanting what's good for people. Start wanting the best for people. Start wanting them to flourish legitimately from your heart. Want them to succeed. So that, you know, if they come to you, for instance, and say, Pastor, I think that I'll do better if I go to the other church. Instead of feeling all pouty and feel like you're being rejected, just say, if this is going to be best for you, I want it to. You see? Now, here's the, here's the amazing thing. And I, I'm working on it. I'm not, I'm not perfect yet. I'm working on that covenant thing. But here's what I found. I found that wherever people, and I'm teaching this to my church, right? And what I found is that wherever people really engage covenant relationships, you can expect the presence of God to show up in might and power. Because if you read the book of Acts, every time that there's a testimony of signs and wonders proving the validity of the resurrection, the verse either preceding or right after that says something like this, they were all together in one place in one accord. Or they were all together on Solomon's porch and the apostles gave great testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So those two core values right there gave me... First of all, I am gonna, I am gonna require my church to steward the presence, to host the presence of the living God. So that when people come in, really doesn't matter how, how great the sermon is. I mean, we want excellence. We want our bathrooms to be clean. But that's, doesn't, the priority is, is the presence of God gonna be there? Don't I need to calm down? Is the presence of God gonna be there? And then, and then the second thing is, when people come to our church, do they really believe that what's going to happen here is going to be for their good and their benefit, and we really love them enough to say, we, we want what's best for you. See? The kingdom of God is built around really successful relationships. If two of us agree together as touching anything in his name, it'll be done. Where two or more gathered in his name, <gasps> There he is in the midst of those who have gathered in his name. <gasps> if you decide you're going to put an offering in the offering box, but you remember that there's a breach in a relationship, the Bible said, Jesus says, don't give the offering, go work on the relationship. Pastors don't like me to preach that part too much. <laughs> Jesus said, if you're in prayer and you realize that you have an offense against someone else, before you keep praying, you should go work on the relationship because the kingdom of God is built around believers who practice together the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you believe he's risen from the dead? If it's true that he's risen from the dead, then the greatest power in the earth is not sin or fear or addiction. The greatest power in the earth is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. <gasps> Come on. Come on. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is way off up in heaven somewhere. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is right here. It's right here. 
He's right here. He's right here. I, uh, I think I mentioned that my son lives in Philadelphia. I don't know if I said that publicly or privately to some of you, but my son lives in Philadelphia. And so um, <clears throat> he, has a bunch, he, he works for the Quaker church, and, and he's surrounded by a lot of real liberal thinkers. He is a professor of religion at Temple University. And so we have interesting conversations. And, and um, one of his friends, I was, at a, I was at a party not too long ago with one of his friends, and one of his friends said, his friend said, uh, so talk to me about this Bible stuff. And I'm like, okay, what do you want to know? And he says, well, you know that story in the Bible about Abraham and how God asked him to sacrifice his son, Isaac, and, and this was, happened to be a newborn dad, a, a dad who just had a newborn He's like, I just want to tell you, he says, I, I want nothing to do with a God who would even ever ask a father to do something like that. I want nothing to do with a God who could even imagine something like that. He says, what do you have to say about that? And I didn't know what to say about that. So here's what I said. Well, let me ask you a question. I said, does the story of Abraham and Isaac make the resurrection of Jesus untrue to you? He says, what does that mean? I said, well, I know you don't like that story, but does it invalidate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? He's like, I, I don't know, I don't know. I says, well, answer that question and then I'll answer yours. Because, dear friends, there's a lot of things to get hung up on, right? Come on, we can get hung up on politics. We can get hung, hung up on church polity. We can get hung up on where the organ ought to be. We can get hung up on, you know, how, what the young people ought to be doing or not doing. Or we can get hung up on so much stuff. But I'm just here to tell you, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then the greatest power in the universe is not whatever is holding you or defeating you or burdening you. The greatest power in the universe is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's here. It's in you. And if the church ever decided that together we were going to steward the presence of the living God. And when people came, they weren't going to just hear a nice lesson on how to be moral, but they were going to meet the living God. Then it'd, it'd, it'd make a difference. It'd make a difference. Musicians, help me finish this, please. If you start playing, I'll stop talking. I've talked to you tonight about two things. I've talked to you about the idea that there's a calling on your life. And, and I guess, how many of you, you know you need, how many of you understand it's important to respond to a, to a message? If you believe the Holy Spirit is talking to you about anything, it's important to respond to it. And, and so... If you believe that tonight there's a, there's a reminder to your heart, there's an awakening to your reality that you are called, you're here on purpose. Listen, so much better for you to go to heaven if you're not going to live in your calling. If you're called tonight, my big ask, this is the big ask, if, you're call, if you know you're called, I want you just to acknowledge, I want you to wake up. And it, not, I don't mean awake, wake up. That's an insulting term. You're not asleep. What I, what I need you to do is acknowledge, acknowledge that you're here with purpose. You've been called by God to be here. It's what gives significance to your life. It's why you have responsibility. You can't be significant without responsibility. God has called you here now to do great things for his kingdom, to unveil a testimony that is unprecedented in this generation. He's called you to do that. And the second thing that I've talked about is the presence of God. 
And, w- and what, I'd like, what I'd love for you to do is not, not adopt the core values of, I didn't even get to the final two, but they don't matter. The first two are the only ones that really matter tonight. I, I'm not asking you to adopt the core values of Trinity, but what I'm asking you to do is realize that what people really need that are hurting and dying and lonely and divorcing and what they really need, they need so much, but they really need to know that God is alive, that his presence is real, that he's here, that the resurrection power is available to them. And you become the host, you become the stewards of of the presence of God. So we've talked about the calling, we've talked about the presence, and I just want you to decide with me that whatever you become as a church in the years to come, you would not be a museum that just studies about what God used to do, looking at the artifacts, diagnosing the relics of the day God used to move. God wants to move now. He wants to move today. He wants to move in our lives and in this region. And that's the reason Jesus died on the cross. Would you, will you stand together with us, please? Now, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus. Okay, everybody's heads, your heads bowed, your eyes are closed. Here's, here's an opportunity to respond. Who would say, Jim, Pastor Jim, I, I get it, and I'm not sure. I really sense God driving this idea, this truth into my heart. I am called, and, and I'm about to respond to what I believe the Holy Spirit is saying to me. I'm going to lift my hand, and when I do, it becomes my vow to walk worthy of the calling. I'm having a new sense of worth about the call of God that's on my life. And if there's anybody in the house at all that would like to say, today is the day I'm crossing over a line to acknowledge that the call of God on my life has great value, please pray for me. And then just lift your hand all over the house. Oh my goodness, thank you. Thank you, thank you for being, listen, honesty with God. Honesty with God is so critical. You can just put your hand right back down. And how many of you, again, I'm not trying to, not trying to make you like, like Trinity. That's not what my heart is, but my heart is to understand that God is looking for a place to in, where his presence inhabits, where he abides. He's looking for his resting places, just like in the Old Testament. So you're the leadership of this group. I know, I know you wouldn't be here if you didn't feel a responsibility to be here tonight, but who would say, okay, to the best of my ability, I'm going to be one of those who through my praise and my adoration and my recognition of the revelation of God, the Holy Spirit will be welcome here. The presence of God will inhabit the praises of, uh, of his people. And so if we become the people, if we become the people who welcome the presence of God, and then when our guests and our friends and all that, when they come into the house, they're gonna have living divine encounters. They're gonna have real encounters with a risen Christ. And if that 
that's the mission and that's the vision and that's the idea of your heart, then again, would you just lift your hand and say, I'm welcoming the presence of God. I'm welcoming the stewardship of the presence of God. And again, while your hands are lifted, I just want to pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, you've raised up a church for this generation. It's different than the early church, and yet that same presence, that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is here among us. Here, You are here to raise us up and, and to present to our friends and our family and our loved ones. Lord, you're, you're here to present the testimony of your great love and your great power. So God, tonight, whatever else is going on, I acknowledge my calling. Make that your confession. Say it out loud. I acknowledge my calling. Say it again. I acknowledge my call. You've called me, Lord. My life has meaning. My life has purpose. And then, and then secondly, would you make this confession? I welcome your abiding presence. Say it. I welcome your abiding presence. Say it one more time. I welcome your abiding presence. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, by the authority vested in me as a purveyor of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the scripture which is true and relevant, I decree over this church the mantle of God. The mantle of God fall upon your people for the sake of of our great King Jesus. Hallelujah. Somebody give the Lord praise right now. Let's give him praise. Hey, listen, we're going to go back into a couple of songs of worship. And uh, I just want to encourage you, let's take some time and just worship God. If, if you're concerned about time, I told you before, if you need to step away, feel free. But uh, I, I don't leave unless you just really need to because we want to take some time and our prayer team is here and and I want you if you responded and a whole bunch of people responded tonight if you responded and said and I'm I'm gonna take on the mantle I'm gonna I'm gonna respond to the call of God on my life I would strongly encourage you let our prayer team pray with you um we don't want you just to, to respond and then walk out and hopefully nobody saw you respond and maybe maybe nobody will see that you raised your hand. And We want to make this thing real. And so we want to pray with you and agree with you about the calling that's on your life. And so we want you to do that. And if you're here today and you say, you want, I want to, uh, like Pastor Jim said, I, I want to welcome the abiding presence of God, then we just want to usher that into this place as we worship together. And so we're, we're going to take some time and pray, and we're going to take some time and worship. But this is an opportunity for us just to say, okay, God, this is all about you. And so I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you're comfortable, <laughs> if you're comfortable with this, I want to encourage you, uh, get out from your seat. If you want to go in the back of the room and walk around and pace, I'm a pacer when I, when I worship sometimes. I like to walk up and down or pray. Uh, maybe you want to come down here and just kneel at the front of this room. There's nothing supernatural about the front of this room, but maybe it's going to help you to connect and just come out here and, and kneel before God. Maybe that's you. That's okay. Maybe you want to raise your hands. Maybe you've never done that before. Let's do that. Whatever the case is, let's take a few minutes and just pursue God like never before. And again, if you're here and you respond and say, there's a call in my life, we want to pray with you before you leave. We don't want you to leave here without having somebody pray with you. So our prayer team is going to be on either side of the stage and we're going to agree with you. So let's just go after God and see what happens in the next few minutes. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
to watch this message on video, go to summittogether.com.